You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. Your host is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. On the 50th anniversary of the first successful mitral valve replacement, how far has cardiac surgery come and where are we headed now? Our guest today is Dr. Albert Starr. Dr. Starr invented the first artificial mitral valve. He's currently the medical director of the Providence Heart and Vascular Institute and director of academic affairs and bioscience development for Providence Health and Services in Portland, Oregon. It is a true pleasure and honor to welcome Dr. Starr to our program. Well, it's great to be with you, and especially to be alive 50 years afterwards. Well, I have so many questions to ask you. We could start pretty much anywhere, but I think I'd like to ask first, as you completed your training, how did your twig get bent toward valvular disease? Well, valvular disease was the next big thing because the first generation of cardiac surgeons attacked congenital heart disease. And most of the surgery we did was on small children and babies. But then as 1960 approached, we realized that there was a lot to do in adults as well. And the the major field that was up for attack was valvular heart disease. At that time, coronary arteriography was still early in its development, and coronary disease was on the back burner for the time being. So valvular disease was our number one target. And maybe you could elaborate on that, sort of set the landscape for the patients that you saw in 1960. Well, the patients we saw were with end-stage disease. That is, they were in congestive failure, they were in the hospital, they were in oxygen tents, and they were dying. None of the cardiac medications that were given to them for congestive failure and other associated problems had all been worked through, and now these were end-stage patients. Because of the structural problem, medications had little to no effect. Yes, they had little to no effect at that end stage. Talk our listeners through some of your early thinking about how to approach these patients. Well, the first thing was to look at aortic and then mitral. So the aortic situation was a little different because we began to use individual leaflets made of Dacron for leaflet replacement for the aortic valve. So there was some glimmering of hope in dealing with aortic valve disease, although really great prostheses were not available yet. But if you couldn't repair the mitral, then the patient would not survive the operation or be very sick afterwards in the hospital. So the mitral valve became our first target. I know that your first or second ideas needed to be worked through. In other words, things didn't start out with the final product. Tell us some of the stages that you went through. Well, there were a lot of stages. The first thing was to reach an agreement with an engineer. At that time, there were no bioengineers, but there were engineers that were interested in circulation to to form a combined team with an engineer because a surgeon could not do it alone. And I was fortunate to get a really great engineer, Lowell Edwards, who appeared in my office one day and volunteered to build an artificial heart. And I told him that, let's do it one valve at a time because we had no artificial valves. And so he agreed to start on the mitral valve. That was step number one. And then step number two was to figure out whether the valve needed to imitate the normal anatomy or not because the mitral valve is very complex. It attaches through cords to the inside of the left ventricle. And were these cordal attachments essential for ventricular function? Do they help prevent over-distension of the left ventricle? Can the left ventricle function 
with a prosthesis that had no cordy tendinae, that had no attachments to the ventricular wall itself. And we had to find that out. That was the first discovery that, yes, you could build a mitral artificial valve that did not have cords, and it could function in animals very well. The initial problem was what materials to use, and there are only a few materials that had been used before inside the body, and that was a Dacron and Teflon cloth and silastic or silicone rubber. That was it in the circulation. And so we had to work with those materials to begin with. And there were issues of anticoagulation. Maybe you could take us through your first wave of implantations beyond the animals. The first wave was very interesting because... So our first valve was basically the concept of a cloth sewing ring. We had to have a cloth sewing ring so that ingrowth could occur and the valve would be permanently healed. And that sewing ring was attached to the mitral annulus after the mitral valve was removed. So that was the first big step. And the first sewing rings were very primitive, but they were very rapidly advanced in design and, until they reached the modern configuration about five years later. The next step was to figure out what kind of valvular mechanism to use, whether it would be leaflet valve or not. And so we use silastic leaflets, silicone rubber leaflets that were mounted on a frame of Teflon. The Teflon had an extension of Dacron cloth as a sewing ring. We had varying geometries of the leaflets, but in implanting them in animals, the circulation after going off bypass, after removing them from support of the heart-lung machine, was satisfactory. That is, we discovered that the heart, in fact, could function without cordy tendinae. But all the dogs died of thrombosis very early on, within two or three days of the implantation. So then we had to address the problem, not of hemodynamics, but of thrombosis. And we tried many different iterations of leaflet valves, but they all thrombosed. What we discovered at autopsy was that the thrombus started at the zone of implantation where the tissue had been damaged by sutures. That's where clot started. And, and then it spread over onto the orifice of the valve. And if there were leaflets attached to the rim of the valve, the clot would extend onto these leaflets. The leaflets would become stiffened, and then the valve would stop functioning, and the whole thing would thrombose. So we had to give up a leaflet design in favor of a ball valve design. But there, it was different. The thrombus would extend up to the orifice of the valve, but it would take a long time before enough thrombus developed that could fall over and obstruct the valve completely. So initially, with leaflets, we had dogs survive two or three days. But with the ball valve, we had dogs survive for a month or more. Uh, none of them over five or six weeks. And so we, we finally, in 1959, reached the dilemma that we could not have long-term dog survival after mitral valve replacement, even with the ball valve design, and we needed a new method of a new design that would enable long-term survival. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, XM160. It's the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our honored guest today is Dr. Albert Starr, inventor of the first artificial mitral valve. He's medical director of the Providence Heart and Vascular Institute and director of academic affairs and bioscience development for Providence Health and Services in Portland. We're discussing the invention of the first prosthetic valve. We're talking about mitral valve in particular. 
And Dr. Starr, you were just saying that in 1959, you realized that up until that point, uh, what you were trying was not resulting in a good long-term outcome, first for dogs. Tell us what happened in your thinking at that time. Well, we felt that it would be unethical to use a device in man in which we could not get long-term survival in dogs. And I think most investigators at that time were thinking along the same lines. So we could not use humans as the experimental animal. And so we had this impasse, but we finally, through examination of the pathology of the thrombus formation, realized that if we could cover the zone of implantation with a silastic shield that could be retracted out of the way while you suture the valve in place, and then this shield would flap down, this rubber shield would flap down onto the zone of implantation and shielding it from the circulation that perhaps we could avoid the problem of thrombus occluding the opening in the valve itself. And sure enough, that was the big breakthrough. Following that development, we were able to get 80% long-term survival with mitral valve replacement in dogs. And I don't think any other investigative group had that kind of success with animal valve replacement at that time. And subsequent to that major advance in your technique, you began work in humans? Yes. What happened was the chief of cardiology, who had not visited our animal laboratory for quite a while, came down to see what we were doing. (laughs) He had a hospital full of patients in oxygen tents, and he saw these black Labradors that had mitral valve replacement prancing around. One of them stuck his head through the cage and licked his hand. (laughs) And he was looking into the eyes of this dog that had a total mitral valve replacement. And I thought we'd need a couple more years to check out what the late complication rate would be. And he felt that we should move forward swiftly because of the urgency of the problem. And the chief of surgery felt the same. And so basically, I was just a young kid at the time. And they pressured me to begin the clinical program, which we did. And and we had to address a lot of issues along the way. Well, in fact, I would call you also, I'm not the only one, one of the pioneers of outcomes research, because as much as you were into developing the teams, the creative thought around an entirely new field of cardiac surgery, you also were paying attention, it sounds, from the very beginning about the outcomes that were being Yes, that was one of the ethical issues we addressed. There were a lot of them, but one of them was that we're putting in a life support device. It was the first of its kind. And so what were our obligations? It seemed to us that the obligations were lifetime follow-up. This was just not one episode to be followed for a month or two. We were obligated to the science of medicine and to the patient to have long-term follow-up. And so we developed a method, a medical data research center with Gary Grunkemar, a great statistician, and we were able to build a a system for long-term follow-up of these patients. But there were other ethical issues as well that we needed to address. Elaborate a little bit more on those. There are such well, interesting things. Well, one of them today. was at that time there was no informed consent required. It was not a standard practice. So we had to build an informed consent form. Also, we had to address the issue of medical liability because we knew that initial mortality would be quite high. This was something new. Uh, how could we shield ourselves and the engineers and the company that the engineer formed from? excess liability. Could you buy in liability insurance? And we found that we could not, but we went ahead without that assurance. As you describe these, I'm struck by how 
current this discussion is, we're still struggling with many of those same issues today. Certainly, you laid the foundation for subsequent discussions. We now have registries for cardiac surgery. I wonder if you'd speak to the role that registries play in informing our next steps. Oh, I think that what's happening now is really great, for example, with regard to left ventricular assist devices, uh, artificial hearts, the mandatory registration process. You go online and see exactly what's going on at any time, and it's kept up to date. That's a very good way of doing it. But we, we maintain our own registry because when Edwards Laboratories Incorporated was formed, now Edwards Life Sciences, they kept a registry of all the patients. And they had the obligation, as well as we, to, to follow their devices. As a result of the care which they exercised, they never were exposed to any liability with regard to construction of these valves. And we're able to continue to innovate, which there's been a challenge of regulation versus innovation, if you will, trying to find the right balance there. Yeah, it is important. And what we did in two or three years you know, would take maybe 10 or more years to do now because of regulation, because we didn't stop with the first model. The configuration of materials used in the valve, the manufacturing processes, continued very rapidly for about five years from 1960 to 1965 until the final rendition of basically the gold standard valve replacement was achieved. And that was all done without FDA regulation. The FDA was concerned at that time only with drugs and not with medical devices. They were not interested in devices until the mid-1970s. I wonder if you would tell us what you're looking at now. You've certainly created this stunning foundation for cardiac surgery and cardiac care. Where's the frontier for us? The next big thing is the uh, transcatheter implantation of aortic valves now and other methods of dealing with mitral valve repair through less invasive uh, techniques. And I think that's an amazing breakthrough because with aortic valves, we're only operating on a small percentage of the patients that need the surgery. So many are high risk and are rejected from operation because of age or other issues. And now we will have a, a new method of implantation that, for aortic valve disease, for example, that will not involve cardiac surgery, which will open the field enormously. And continue the necessity to follow those outcomes closely. Oh, absolutely. The, the initial studies in the United States were a randomized study, very carefully orchestrated. And what we're hoping is the randomized study will end this year and that in 2011, the Edwards Life Sciences transcatheter valve will be available in the United States. We've been talking about the invention of the first prosthetic mitral valve with its inventor, Dr. Albert Starr. Dr. Starr, thanks so much for being our guest today. You bet. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.